Let's begin. The title is actually a little ambitious. A lawyer looks at the lawyer who tempted Christ. You know, if you think about that for a moment, you think about the the temptation in the wilderness in Luke chapter 4, it's a little bit uh, unimpressive after you have survived the temptation from Satan himself to be tempted by a lawyer. And yet, as you know, that's the King James language. And as we'll see in a moment, it might be better translated to say, put on trial. I've had the opportunity in large part because of Alan's father to speak on the topic of the trials of Jesus. We have looked at the Roman trial and the Jewish trial in detail on many occasions, and it's been a real blessing to me. Tonight, I want to suggest that this is the first trial at the hands of men, at the hands of an expert lawyer that Jesus not only faced, but faced with flying colors. So if you will, let's begin. Chief Justice John Marshall is uh, perhaps one of the most well-known Supreme Court justices of the uh, Republic era. He was uh, uh, born on a, in, a, in a log cabin in the rural frontier of Virginia. His father was friends with George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. And every law student that has attended law school probably since time memorial, or at least since 1803, has studied an opinion authored by this great jurist. The name of it is Marbury versus Madison. It is uh, still the kind of uh, words that, that make me a little tremble, tre- tre- make me tremble a little bit, thinking about the prospect of having to stand in front of my peers to uh, cite that case. And yet this evening, I'll, I want to share another opinion authored by this great jurist, an opinion that very few people probably have heard of. In 1830, towards the end of his career, Chief Justice Marshall penned the opinion in a case entitled United States versus George Wilson. And this was a little known defendant accused of robbing the U.S. mail and in the process murdering someone, felony murder, and was sentenced to hang. And that, and that judgment was one that was for different political reasons we need not go into here, something that caught President Andrew Jackson's attention. And he certified in a very elaborate letter an official pardon as the President of the United States on behalf of George Wilson. But then a strange and interesting thing occurred. Wilson refused the pardon. And, one of the, and the case proceeded because the sheriff didn't know what to do all the way to the Supreme Court. And Chief Justice Marshall, at the request of President Jackson, uh, try, had to decide what to make of this. And here's what his decision was. He wrote, a pardon is a piece of paper, the value of which depends upon its acceptance by the person implicated. It's hard to, suppose, to be supposed that one under sentence of death would refuse to accept pardon. But if it is refused... It is no pardon. George Wilson must hang. Tonight, I want to talk to you about a topic that's very fundamental. I want to talk to you about man's part in salvation. That God, as he reaches down with all of his love and all of his mercy and all of his his grace, is not teaching us about universalism. 
But instead, he is demanding that all men everywhere repent. That man has a part to play in accepting the free gift of grace. That's a basic lesson. Somehow, too many good, sincere, God-fearing people have gone astray on. It's a lesson that this lawyer that we're going to study about in Luke chapter 10 needed to learn. And that's the story that we're about to embark upon. So come with me as we encounter this uh, story. Begin with me in Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. And in the King James, it reads, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you got to understand the lawyers of Jesus' day. They were not trained in an ABA-approved law school. Instead, they were trained in a different law. The old law, the law of Moses. And they had, by a very young age, mastered many parts of it. They had memorized, in most cases, the first five books of the Bible in their entirety. And their job was as scribes, because this term lawyer is uh, unique to the Gospel of Luke, except for one passage in Matthew. Luke is the only one that describes the scribes as lawyers. And they are one and the same. And so one of the duties of the lawyers was to preserve the text of the law. Another was to interpret it and another to teach it. And yet in Jesus' day, in the first century, these scribes, these lawyers, most of whom were affiliated with the Pharisees, a sect that was uh, legalistic and and, uh, very focused not only on the uh, detailed law of Moses, but on the additional Uh, prescriptions that they were imposing on their fellow man, opposed Jesus. In fact, the scriptures say that they opposed God. Luke chapter 7 verse 30 says that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves by not submitting to the baptism of John. And so the idea is that God was able, was willing, and was intending to be able to use these men who had prepared themselves by memorizing and studying his holy writ to be able to use them for his glory. And yet they rejected the counsel of God against themselves. So what can we learn from this particular lawyer that we read about in Luke chapter 10? Let me suggest a few things. And before we begin that list, I want to remind you of what Matthew chapter 5 verse 20 says. For I say unto you that except your righteousness exceed that of the righteousness of the scribes, think lawyer, and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is a consequence to us tonight comparing our spiritual journey to that of of this lawyer that met with Jesus for just a few moments. Because the consequence is, if we don't see what he failed to see, if we don't hear what he failed to hear, if we don't receive what he failed to receive, then we have no reason to expect that we can enter in to the kingdom of heaven. The first mistake this lawyer made in this trial of Jesus was he entertained the wrong posture towards our Lord. You you see there in verse 25 where it says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up. That's no minor detail. 
And that day, Luke chapter 2 verse 46 illustrates this nicely. If you wanted to sincerely learn God's will for your life from men who had dedicated themselves to that study, then you would, like Jesus, go into the temple and sit among the religious leaders. You would sit among the religious leaders and listen to them and ask questions from that position of humility and respect those teachers. The Mishnah records, let thy house be a meeting house for the wise and powder thyself with the dust of their feet and drink their words with thirstiness. The idea is that if you're a sincere student, if you truly are putting yourself in a position to be able to receive the word, then what you're going to do is you're going to get down in the dirt. You're going to study at the feet of men of God. You're not going to stand up and bolden and try to test them, tempt them, try them, make a trial of him as this lawyer attempts to do. I love Acts 22, 3, where Paul, chief of sinners, also a Pharisee, recounts the fact that he himself studied at the feet of Gamal and taught, was taught according to the perfect manner of the law of fathers. The second mistake this lawyer makes on this encounter during this trial where he thinks he's trying our Lord and in fact our Lord is trying him is he has the wrong purpose. You see this from the very outset. The American Standard Version captures this a little bit better, so I'm going to reread that verse with this translation. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and made trial of him, saying, Lawyer, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You see, it was not only his posture, it was his intent that was wrong that, on that occasion. Luke chapter 18, 18, an individual, a young rich ruler, asks virtually the same question. But there's a vast ocean of difference between this uh, lawyer asking the question and this young rich ruler. In fact, Jesus notes the difference. He says in Mark chapter 10, verse 17, that, that the young man came running and kneeled before Jesus and asked him, good, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So you already see in this account of a different account in which the same question is being asked. The young rich ruler is positioning himself. He's posturing himself in a submissive way to the Lord. And then in verse 21, Jesus reads his heart. And it says, Jesus beholding him, loved him. And said unto them, one thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatever thou hast, give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. Now, we know the rest of the story. The young rich ruler went away sad because the scriptures record that he had a great many possessions. But that's not the point. The point is that I want you to see the difference between the, the purpose, the attitude, the heart of this lawyer and this young rich ruler because it's in response to the heart that Jesus is going to respond differently to the lawyer than he does to the rich ruler. Before we observe that, I just want to remind you about how you and I need to be ready to give a response to anybody that asks. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 says, Sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man, to every man, to every man. 
Not just those that whom you tend to agree with you. Not just those to whom that are, that are kind and, 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 and gentle in their uh, requests. But to every man, you need to be able to make a defense, an apologia. And to always give an answer to every man that asks you for a reason. That's the uh, affirmative ability to articulate the logos, the logical, rational reason why you have committed your life to Christ. And you do that, of course, with meekness and fear. And Jesus, of course, is one of our best examples on how to respond to someone, anyone. But the first thing you need to note is that he doesn't respond to everybody the same way, even when they ask the same question. And I think that's where we need to learn better discernment and be able to develop even better skills to be able to be, as the scriptures say, as wise as servants and harmless as doves. Luke chapter 10, verse 26, this is how Jesus responds to the lawyer. He says unto them, what is written in the law? How readest thou? So here is the lawyer with the wrong intent and the wrong posture asking him, what does he need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers a question with a question. He's not trying to be smart here. You got to understand that this is the preferred method of any good legal education. Even today in most law schools, if you really want the law to be engrafted in the mind of the lawyer, if you want to restructure the way he, very, he thinks about the law so that he lives and breathes it and he can think not only about what the law is and memorize what it is, but what it should be tomorrow and what it most likely will be when the judge rules next week. That skill is developed using what is known as the Socratic method. It's the same skill that Jesus is using here to try to develop spiritually this lawyer. He's answering the question with a question, trying to get that lawyer to provide his own answer. And you know how it goes after uh, when he, the, the, the lawyer was quick to respond in verse 27 saying, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength, with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. I mean, he nailed it, didn't he? That's exactly the same answer that Jesus on another occasion gives when he's asked to sum up the law. Jesus says as much in verse 28. He says unto them, thou hast answered right. And then he adds, this do and thou shalt live. What's that mean? You know, most likely Jesus had in mind the passages of the Old Testament. Like Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, which said very plainly, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them. I am the Lord. There are others in Ezekiel and other places, but get the point. Jesus is trying to help that lawyer see the impact and the importance of keeping the old law. That if you're going to be saved by the old law, then you've got to keep all of it. And that's the wrong promise that lawyers focused on. He's quick to give that answer. And Jesus is just putting a period on the answer and saying, now keep in mind what that means is you got to do everything perfectly. And he's trying to teach the lawyer that he's got the wrong promise in his hand. Galatians chapter three says this promise of the Old Testament do and you shall live is actually a curse. Starting in verse 10, it says, for as many as are of the 
works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. That's what Jesus is trying to teach the lawyer. If you're going to hang, if you're going to rest your salvation on the old law and keeping it perfectly, you've got to understand that's a curse. That will not get you where you want to be. Now, that's a lesson that he's not going to teach with so many words. We're mindful of the fact that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, as Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says. But I want you to see that this parable of the Good Samaritan that so many of us are so familiar with, I want you to see the larger context of it. I want you to understand that it starts out in Luke 10 with Jesus sending out the 72 to preach the gospel, the good news, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he tells them, I'm sending you out. You aren't, there aren't enough of you. I'm sending, out, sending you out as lambs among wolves. And entire towns are going to reject you. But know this, that if they reject you, if they reject your message, they're not rejecting just you. They're rejecting me. And if they rejected me, then they're also rejecting the Father, the one who sent me. He says, you just need to know that you tried. And that town is going to regret rejecting you because they need to know that the kingdom of God had come near to them. So close and yet so far. And so it's in that context that they then come back and they're celebratory and they're joyous. And they're saying, look, even the demons are submitting to us in your name, Lord. It's amazing. And Jesus blesses the father. And then he makes this interesting statement right before this encounter with the lawyer that I believe is very much connected to the story of the lawyer. He turns to his disciples and says privately to them, blessed are the eyes which see the things that they see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them and to hear those things that you hear and have not heard them. You see, the problem with the lawyer was that he had the wrong presupposition. He assumed because he was a Pharisee that he had eternal life. And he assumed that that he was much better than all the sinners of the world, especially those Samaritans. And you can see that, that, that false assumption that he had built his entire religious life around in verse 29. Because when Jesus tries to teach him this basic principle of the need for the gospel in the face of the inability of any man to keep the law perfectly, he asks another question. And it says, he willing to justify himself said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see the problem yet? There's a, there's a scripture in John chapter eight, verse 48, that illustrates the fact that in the mind of this lawyer, no doubt, and certainly within the Pharisees uh, and, and the religious leaders of that day, there was a, there was a wide difference between a, a Jew and a Samaritan. 
and that the worst thing you could call somebody was a Samaritan. Or maybe the worst was John 8, 48, a demon-possessed Samaritan. But it don't get much worse than that. Because in their mind, they're the sinner. They're the ones separated from God. They're the ones that are lost. They're the ones without hope. And Jesus is saying, you, you, you presume too much. And so that, in that context, he tells them this parable that you and I know so well. Starting in verse 30, Jesus answered him and says, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his clothes and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite. Now, a Levite was an assistant to the priest. And when he was at that place, he came and he looked on the man and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, that half-breed, because he intermarried in violation of God's law, that traitor, because they were responsible in large part for the destruction of the temple, that Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion on him. You see the contrast that Jesus is trying to set up in the lawyer's mind with this parable? And we went to him and bound up his wounds and poured oil and wine on them and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow when he departed, he he took out two two pence or denarii and gave them to the host and and said unto him, take care of him. And whatever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. And so it's very clear who the hero in this story is. It's not the priest. It's not the, the, the Levite even. It's the Samaritan. You know, Jesus spoke in parables for a reason. He tells us that reason in Matthew chapter 13, verse 13. He says, I speak in parables because they, and here's that same language we keep seeing. Seeing, see not. Hearing, hear not. Neither do they understand. You see it yet? We have to see it. We've got to be able to hear it. And the lawyer, that's his problem. He, like this priest, like this Levite, is on the wrong path. You see, they were changing direction. They were moving in the wrong direction instead of pursuing what they know the law said they're supposed to do, which is to take care of those in need. They're, they're heading in the wrong direction. And direction, not intention, too often determines destination. Let me say that again. Direction, not intention, too often determines destination. And so this causes the lawyer to be asking the wrong question. You can almost hear the the sarcasm, the smart aleckness of it. Who is my neighbor? As if he's trying to see how far he, how much he has to do and nothing more. He's on the wrong path. And yet, Jesus recognizes he's asking the wrong question. And he asks him. The reverse question. Jesus asks, now which of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him who fell among the thieves? The question is not, is the person in need my neighbor? The question is, are you a neighbor? 
And the lawyer has to respond with the obvious answer, the one that showed mercy. And then Jesus says unto him a second time, go and do thou likewise. The parable is more, this parable is more than just a simple story of showing kindness. That's not in dispute here. You can see in multiple passages of the Old Testament and the New Testament, our obligation to do good to others. In fact, Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. But there are too many people out there playing church. Got this in the mail the other day. The cover is about the story inside of the, of the humanist organization at Yale. And these atheists, these agnostics are playing church. They come together to support each other and they read passages to one another and they sing songs and, and they do good works and go out and help the poor. Too many people in this world are playing church. The issue is not whether or not you can do enough good to deserve to go to heaven. The issue is whether or not you have humbled yourself before God and submitted yourself to his plan and obeyed his gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus made this point much more clearly to that young rich ruler we talked about earlier. He said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one. And that's God. So the last point is this. The lawyer fails in this encounter with Jesus to see what he needed to see to inherit eternal life. Because he had chose the wrong prescription. Sin didn't make the Samaritan in that story worthless, only lost. And all of his good works didn't save him. It only showed his receptivity to the love of God. I can save, no, God can save any sinner except the sinner who won't admit that he's one. The lawyer in this story is trying to save and justify himself and doesn't see his own sinfulness and contrasts himself with a Samaritan as if to embolden, him, embolden himself and make himself appear more righteous. And that will keep him from being able to confess sin and repent of that sin and thus partake of salvation. There's no remedy for what ails this lawyer. Tonight, I remind you that we don't do good works to earn our salvation. We're generous to others because Jesus was generous to us on the cross. We extend a helping hand to those in need because we know that but for God reaching down from heaven, there would be no rescuing us from our own sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 pointed to just such a reason in trying to encourage people to do good to those in need. And the lawyer, he had too much belief in himself and not enough belief in God's son. Tonight, I don't know what your spiritual condition is. 
But I encourage you to understand that a relationship with God requires more than just lip service. John chapter three, verse 36 says that he that believes in the son has eternal life. But then notice the contrast. The contrast is not he that believeth not. The contrast in the ASV captures it the best is, but he that obeyeth not the son shall not see life. You want to inherit eternal life, then you've got to see, you've got to understand that the gospel message that's been revealed since the day of Pentecost, that the kings and the prophets of old were all looking for and never got to see, is now being extended to you. And that you are without excuse and God loves you and wants you to repent of your sins and you will not be able to avoid the day of judgment. And those that do not know God and obey the gospel will never inherit eternal life. If you're already a Christian, as most of us are, I remind you of the importance of this community as the body of Christ, not because of our individual abilities, but because by working together, we're able to glorify God, but only for one reason. Because each one of us are part of this community only to the extent to which we have died to ourselves and taken up our cross and lived for Christ. And in that humble submission to God's will, we become one. One with each other and one with Him and one with the Father so that we might know God and inherit eternal life. Thank you for listening. We would appreciate it if you would share this podcast with your friends and leave us a review on Apple iTunes or Google Play. For more PTP information, visit polishingthepulpit.com or search for Polishing the Pulpit on Facebook.